Kako. Thank you so much for joining us today for this Aloha Friday conversation. I'm Noe Tanigawa, and for our neighbor island listeners, I really hope these stories today are going to bring you exploring in Honolulu next time. Now today, Chinatown's coming at us like a nine-course dinner, and we're going to start out with Honolulu's city prosecutor, Stephen Alm. He's reviving hopes around a rebooted effort to weed out crime and seed in positive activities in Chinatown. We had tremendous success when we did this the last time when I was U.S. attorney, and that was the first place we did it, Kalipalama, Chinatown. So we're in the process of doing it again. We've been going for about a month. Um, I think it's already had a noticeable effect on Chinatown. It's safer. It's cleaner. It's. Uh, I think the merchants just want to be left alone to to sell their products <laughs> and with a sure. So, what are the elements of weed and seed that are happening right now? You're, you're talking about maybe the twenty four seven HPD program. Yes, that, that HPD was and the mayor have been great because the very simply the idea is. You, you talk to residents in an area, they tell you what their biggest crime problems, what their biggest social service gaps are, what they'd like to see government work with them on. And then you get the law enforcement committee organized to essentially reduce crime in the area. And then when it's safer, people will feel comfortable being outside, participating in community events. And so this time with COVID, we couldn't have those uh, meeting. So it started with Rich Wacker. ASB, American Savings Bank, has been trying to do a lot with Ala Park. There's something like uh, 18,000 people that live within a 10-minute walk of Ala Park. And it really should be a center of our community, like Central Park in New York City, green space in the middle of an urban center. And so he agreed to help fund a survey of businesses, residents, workers and visitors to Chinatown and Palama, then Central Pacific Bank, then First Hawaiian, then Bank of Hawaii. Together, they donated $110,000. Anthology did the survey and the results would be at any time. And that will help drive, in particular, the seed components, because people will say what they want in the community, what they like to work on. You know, we've already started, the law enforcement side has started, a couple of dozen homeless guys with drug problems and mental health problems have been arrested. We are in the process of working with the Department of Health to get them assessed and then into one of our good drug treatment and mental health treatment programs. It's tough. They have waiting lists, long waiting lists to get in there. Yeah, but and they're going to you know, guys. I, I have to be optimistic as well, while still knowing that there, there was a terrific cleanup you know, all the yep. downtown arts center pitched in on that Chinese yep. chamber of commerce. The next yep. day, everybody was so depressed by de- defecation right in front of their doorways. I mean, you know, there are crimes per se, but there yep. are also these sort of lifestyle factors like defecation, simple defecation that people cannot get to stop happening. It's not going to happen overnight. It's just going to be an ongoing process, and we will mm-hmm. keep doing that. The seed component never went away. After I left, yeah, but the weed of it, even you know, because the, I know this, the weed this HPD, the the HPD component of it. This time around, there is buy-in. Apparently, yes. you know what with yes. the administration HPD throwing yeah. in, uh, through no fault of the cities, it ha- it has to be a voluntary program in terms of officers staffing it. That's, so we're working that, with the judiciary on dealing with the arrests that are made, and we will keep doing that. It's not going to happen overnight. I Our, worry, I too, about where where funds will come from, because the whole Weed and Seed program ran ran aground nearly, you know, earlier this year. It, it's kind of struggling back. You and the mayor were just at a, at a fundraiser for it. Yeah. Um, the city council with Councilman Fukunaga got it in the budget. It's going to take a while for those funds to be released to pay for the two coordinators, but that will happen. And in the meantime, we're working the weed part. We will work the seed part. This is going to work. It's going to be, it's already working. We did extend the boundary on one side, on the Cocoa Head side, a couple of blocks over. Now that the boundary was moved from Nuuano over to Bishop Street, it will encompass both Fort Street Mall and Union Mall. So those issues will be taken care of as well. 
H1 freeway to Nimitz and people are envisioning this river street to Richard street, you know, absolutely um, footprint for a really vibrant downtown. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that with all of the efforts, the first time around, it created an environment in Chinatown where all these bars and restaurants and art academies and stores felt safe enough to open up and do things. Because back when we started this, local people wouldn't park their cars in Chinatown. They'd be afraid the cars would get vandalized. They'd get assaulted. And and crime was reduced by 70% in four years the first time around. That's going to happen again. I have no doubt of it. It seems as though funding is going to be our biggest challenge going forward for Weed and Seed and any other programs. Because when we talk about drug court or or drug options, there just simply aren't enough programs. Well, and the judiciary uh, has a budget. So if defendants on probation end up needing drug treatment or mental health treatment, that budget has been cut by 80% this past year. And many of the people in drug treatment, like at Hinamauka or at Poelani or at uh, Salvation Army ATS, many of their clients come from the court system. Well, now the judiciary doesn't have money for that. So, you know, that will be a big push and I'll be supporting them to restore their budget so they can send people for treatment and we can help them to be successful that way. And if the federal funds are what's gonna carry it for the next year, that's fine too. It's But the judiciary has to get up and running and being able to help supervise people on probation the way they used to and to help pay for drug treatment because we have some good drug treatment and mental health treatment programs, but they need to get funding to survive themselves, to pay the counselors, the nurses and, and other, you know, other people. Because there's certain crimes that we're convinced take place in Chinatown just because of the milieu because of the bars and the restaurants and the alleys and stuff the same crime like what like prostitution it's not going to take place on king street five blocks toward the cocoa head it's going to take place in chinatown so if we can stop that same with the shoplifting in some of the stores disorderly conduct fights selling weed that kind of stuff it's something about an urban core like that that makes that easier to happen. Honolulu City Prosecutor Stephen Alm is saying a lot about expectations there. We'll look at some history behind that. Meanwhile, since July 13th, the weed and seed effort has resulted in 51 arrests. Mr. Alm says treatment is assured for those needing it. HPD reports a supervisor and four to six officers are scheduled per shift in Chinatown 24-7, staffed by officers on a volunteer overtime basis. You see, HPD is dealing with a staff shortage. They had 310 vacancies at the beginning of August. 150 recruits are in training right now. Councilmember Carol Fukunaga serves Council District 6, which includes Chinatown. Fukunaga was a state senator for 20 years before joining the council in 2012. Others show up, but Councilmember Fukunaga is the lone area rep I see at every neighborhood board meeting. Fukunaga points out the city's parking lots, empty storefronts, and parks contribute to Chinatown's problems. People discovered that many of the problems are really city uh, um, related. You know, for example, we have a lot of complaints about homelessness, drug dealing, etc. And several of the locations uh, where we have hotspots are often city operated parking structures, you know, within some of the affordable housing and other kinds of properties that the city manages and maintains. Uh, Weed and Seed, which the prosecutor and HPD are kind of moving forward with, is another area that can make a big difference, particularly with respect to 
illegal activities like drug dealing or other kinds of uh, activities on the street. You know, uh, if you have people smoking crystal meth or whatever um, in broad daylight, you know, those are some of the kinds of things that have been problematic in the past or else where we have individuals who are aggressive and who start harassing or even attacking elderly uh, shoppers along the street. And so weed and seed can help a great deal between HPD and the prosecutor's office because they're working as a team to identify those disruptive elements as well as the illegal activities to be able to coordinate how they handle um, enforcement, prosecution, et cetera. And with weed and seed neighborhoods, you also have the ability to prevent people who have been convicted from returning to the area for at least a one-year period. So that's kind you, of a big, big you know, plus that a lot of people are uh, waiting for. People in the community are willing to pitch in and help when they see that you know, they are following on the heels of a co coherent law enforcement effort and it's safe for them to participate. So then everyone wants to jump in after a while. And that's where you get the excitement and the energy. Yep. And you were mentioning that things like cleaning up the parking lots, you know, which can be just nests of unpleasantness and cleanups on the street, additional exactly. patrols do require funds. How hard is that to get these days for the Chinatown area? In my estimation, anytime you can put together a coordinated effort, if everybody contributes something, then you often discover that the actual dollar amount for city or state or federal funding becomes that much more manageable because you have other people pitching in with either donations of supplies, food supplies, paid supplies, you know, and, and just the overall energy of it. But where does the money come from, from the city? Uh, we appropriate monies to help uh, clean up, right. yeah, clean but up the streets. And then, but those are all small amounts when you think of them on a one-by-one -one basis. If we add some of the money that the prosecutor's office, you know, will go after, and if we organize with foundational groups, business groups, and others, if they all add their, say, 10000 or 20000 or whatever dollar amounts that they add to the mix, you'll find that the work that is needed can be done with the resources you have. Because typically, it's almost like, what do they call that, barn raising. You know, everybody pitches in and you find a way to make the resources that you have work to accomplish what you want to get done. Where, where does this organizing of people and resources come from? Okay, the first cleanup that we're, we're doing, the Chinese Chamber of Commerce has stepped up. Downtown Arts Center, the Arts Coalition is taking one quadrant. You know, I know there's other groups that are taking other locations. It's really organizing, chunking the area up into manageable, you know, work areas, uh, looking to generate the level of support you need to help everyone get together. This is sort of very Hawaii. You know, whenever you have a hurricane, you pitch in together to help your neighbors. Uh, when you have flooding on the North Shore, you know, neighbors. But I think the, the key element that is oftentimes missing is that when the level of uh, unworkability gets too high, people draw back. They stay away. They're not going to participate because they don't feel safe. So it's really for government to create that safe environment to encourage people to step forward and partner. So it's really very much in keeping with Hawaii's culture and values. Councilmember Carol Fukunaga represents District 6, Makiki to Moana Lua, including, of course, Chinatown. Three weeks ago, 10 to 15 campers who are normally fixtures on that stone wall above Nu'uanu Stream were cleared to the relief of residents and businesses there on the Diamond Head side of River Street. Most campers have relocated elsewhere in the neighborhood or in Aala Park. I'll go out with Christina Wang's wound care team there from H3RC. We'll be in Chinatown next week and probably encounter a number of them. Free meals continue at River of Life Mission. Coming up, Roots of Crime in Chinatown.
Ikikawa is a writer and federal law enforcement officer for Homeland Security. He writes about crime for the Hawaii Review of Books. Kikawa has been researching Hawaii history, including criminal history, for a series of novels set in the 1950s. His first book, Kona Wins, is detective noir set in a very flavorful Honolulu. Honolulu in 1953, and I picked that year because it was a pivotal year. It was a year before everything started changing. I've always been fascinated by territorial history because I think it is the great neglected era of Hawaii history. What do you want us to know about, say, 1950 to 19, what, 64, something like that? Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, it's um, for those of us who are from Hawaii, but we are neither native Hawaiian nor Haole. Uh, the, the territorial years were our crucible of struggle. The, uh, those were the sugar plantation years. Those were the years of labor organization. Uh, for the most part, almost nobody I knew who lived through this talked about it very much. It, I came across this in my research for my book, set it in 1953 because we're right on the verge of change in 53. In 1954, there were elections that changed the power structure in Hawaii for good. Uh, this is because most of the Nisei who had U.S. citizenship, the largest population block, single population block in the islands at the time, came of age to vote. And what happened was they changed the power structure of the islands by putting the Democratic Party in the driver's seat. That was in 54. 53 was the last year before that happened, but we're leading up to that. So in 53, you're seeing the kind of the last gasp or the unraveling of the old power structure, which is the old big five plantation owning sugar and shipping domination of the, of the local economy here. Maybe because of your job, you, you are interested in crime. Talk about crime in Chinatown for your research. Yeah, crime in Chinatown happened in stages uh, and it evolved and changed over the years because Chinatown evolved and changed over the years. I always like to look at criminal culture as being kind of a dark reflection of legitimate culture. Here in Hawaii especially, and, and this happened all over the country because of federal legislation, we have two distinct populations of Asian immigrants and their descendants. Our Chinese population here uh, was not affected by the Chinese Exclusion Act the way they were on the mainland because we weren't part of the United States until we were annexed uh, right after the turn of the last century. There was a significant time during under the Kingdom of Hawaii where Chinese immigrants continued to arrive after the enactment of the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act and then they brought Japanese laborers in, uh, they brought a small amount of Korean laborers in and that got cut off in 1924. And for the Chinese, I guess it was much sooner. Since we're annexed, that population stopped too. So you have a, some Asian immigrant populations that are in a way frozen in time where they kept the traditions, they kept the culture of the old country from back then. And then in 1952, Asian immigration resumed in earnest with the 1952 Immigration Act, which basically repealed the 1924 Act and the Chinese Exclusion Act and allowed Asian immigration back into the United States in earnest. What were those people like? They were much more professional. Prior immigrants, they're contract laborers. These 1952 immigrants were entrepreneurial. Uh, they were business owners. They were a laborer of sorts, but many of them were of the white collar variety. When I talk about the criminal culture being reflected uh, in the change of leg legitimate culture, this also opened up a new class of criminal immigrant from Asia. You know, this is where we start to see the entry of women coming in to work in brothels, the entrance of organized crime elements from Asia coming into Hawaii and establishing some of their practices here. What are those practices like? These are organized racketeers. This gave rise, I think, in, in a lot of ways to what we knew as uh, Hawaii organized crime, which kind of had its roots in that tradition 
and started in earnest, I think, in the 1960s. And then throughout the 70s, you know, starting with, with Nappy Pulava and going on into the 70s, all the way into the 90s. And then we have some vestiges of it that lasted into today. But Organized yeah. crime. I mean, you just don't hear about it these days, right, Scott? Oh, no. Yeah, you don't. It, it's alive and well, though. It, it is alive and is well. Is it? How does it exist today? Mostly in what I consider to be the big three rackets. And those rackets are narcotics, prostitution, and gambling. These are all enterprises that are illegal and they're extremely profitable. They are enterprises which you need to launder the proceeds for. In other words, you need to show that money is legitimate somehow. And all three of these rackets are tied together because Hawaii is a small place. We when you have when you talk about certain political players dominating everything or certain economic players dominating the economy the same is true of the criminal world you have certain players that dominate all the rackets they have a um, a finger in each pie so to speak and they launder the proceeds all through the same engine so how bad. many of them are there these kingpin types if i were to say today maybe how many organizations there are, loosely, I would say maybe two or three at most. We're not a big place. And this is kind of what drives me nuts about mainland fiction writers when they try to fictionalize criminal activity in Hawaii. Um, they, they, they envision that we behave the same or our criminals behave the same as they do in mainland cities where it's all divided on ethnic lines and each ethnic group has its own gang or its own family. And they divide a city into turf we're not like that here. It's a small place. So what happens here? Over here, what it's they do. People is, of all ethnic groups, all like. Absolutely. Criminal enterprises are not divided along ethnic lines the way they are on the mainland. Our enterprises are extremely multi-ethnic. They are family operations to a certain extent, but they also bring in people from other ethnic groups to help them run those enterprises and to help them launder those proceeds and to help them distribute whatever they're trying to market, whether it's drugs, sex, or, uh, or gambling. Hey, Chinatown was supposed to be the den for these three, these very things. Why? Well, it, because it's on the edge of what is considered to be respectable white society. And, and I'm talking anachronistically, I'm talking back in the period where I write. We're right on the edge of downtown. We're right on the edge of the business district. If you go, if you straight three blocks ever of Bishop Street, you cross right over into a different world. And that's where those, those enterprises thrive because uh, nobody wants them to thrive three blocks diamond head of that, you know? And uh, that's, that's why they take root there. There's also a cultural aspect to it. In many Asian cultures, gambling is not considered to be immoral. Although it is illegal uh, in many places, it's not considered to be immoral. Prostitution or the sex trade, the line blurs. In a lot of sex trade establishments throughout Asia, and they exported that culture here to Hawaii, a lot of it is not what we call quid pro quo sex for money exchange, which is how prostitution statutes are written. It's, it's a line, it's a very blurry line. I mean, it's been blurry, right? I, mean, I guess we like it that way. I suppose, you know, <laughs> during World War II, uh, we had sanctioned prostitution right along Hotel Street, over Nu'uanu Avenue, ever of that, and into, in, into Chinatown, where these establishments were mostly white women brought in for the war effort. It was sanctioned by the territorial government. There's a wonderful book, The First Strange Place. It has uh, been kind of my Bible and guide to uh, sanction prostitution during World War II in, in the Hotel Street area. Prostitution was also controlled by territorial and by city law enforcement and by the military. And they, they were pretty much confined to that red light district and they were told they could not move beyond those boundaries. It was a very interesting phenomenon. In a way, you would call that trafficking too, <laughs> but their movement was controlled by the government. It's the it, kind that, of thing that uh, could happen in Chinatown, I guess. Sure. That character changed overnight. It went from being an almost ethnically white phenomenon during the war to being an ethnically Asian one after the war, after 1952. It, it changed completely. And prostitution 
really went hand in hand with the other two rackets with gambling and with narcotics. Opium was a big deal prior to the war. In Chinatown, the dens dried up kind of during the war because you couldn't get your bulk supply of opium from Asia anymore, and it kind of fell out of vogue. Heroin became bigger, cocaine much, much later in the 1960s and 1970s. Gambling, though, remained one of those constants. A lot of it was in Chinatown. A lot of it remains in Chinatown today and other places, which are kind of the new Chinatown. Where? Kapilani. Kingamoku, areas like that. and these What are these are, gambling places like? Do they have machines in them? I mean, I don't hear mahjong tiles, right? These are machines, and uh, I, in my opinion, they're kind of unimaginative. It's almost like video games, and you're betting on electronic simulations, and I don't know how random those things are. Uh, supposedly, they're supposed to be programmed to be that way, but um, these are all in offices, upstairs, the storefronts, all over the place. And it's, it's kind of startling how little the MO has changed over the decades. It's just kind of expanded and moved out of the neighborhood a few blocks Diamond Head. And, then, and sometimes today into residential neighborhoods as well, into the suburbs. You know, brothels too are in the suburbs these days. If it's kind of known who the, who, who the perpetrators are, why does it continue? Well, I mean, I guess that's what the, the, the term that was thrown around a few years ago was victimless crime. But I think those of us in law enforcement would never subscribe to, uh, to that term because I think there's no such thing as a victimless crime. There are victims that are created by collaterally. So long as the underlying activity remains illegal, the proceeds become illegal. What happens to those proceeds? There's often collateral damage, which is sometimes violent. For instance, massage parlors or brothels and gambling dens, they kind of have the same amount of liability when it comes to the fact that they have a lot of cash on their premises illegally generated. And this makes them targets for armed robbery. When an establishment like that is hit by armed robbers, they're not going to go to the police and say, we were robbed because the, the proceeds were the fruit of illegal activity to begin with. So in order to prevent that, they have to establish relationships with people who can protect them. And this is how organized crime here uh, really operates, maybe on its most insidious level, which is protection. And back when I'm writing, sometimes that protection has to come from government, under the table, so to speak. That's from police what, officers. Yes, or, yeah. It, yeah, absolutely. And that's what creates a, a culture of corruption. These days, it's not overtly or blatantly law enforcement anymore that takes the big money. It's other people that are engaged in criminal enterprise that have the ability to deter armed robbers and other predators of these illegal businesses. It's a cottage industry where they make a lot of money collecting protection. And protection itself has become a racket. Writer and a federal agent, Scott Kikawa, is researching Hawaii history for his series of detective novels. Kona Winds is out currently. Red Dirt with a backdrop of the Hawaii 7 trial is going to come out in the fall, both of them on Bamboo Ridge Press. Still time to read Kona Winds this summer. And in 1958, a Broadway musical premiered that did a lot to shape Americans' perceptions of Chinese and Chinese-Americans. Native Hawaiian Ed Kenny, yes, Chef Ed Kenny's dad, originated the male lead on Broadway, Wang Ta, in Rodgers and Hammerstein's Flower Drum Song.
Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. In many people's minds, HPR is community. And one way we facilitate that is through Generation Listen. It's an active group of younger HPR listeners who share a curiosity about the world and a passion for creating a more informed and engaged public. Generation Listen is a conscious movement where we hang out, exchange ideas, and smart conversation. You can join our group of curious types and be a part of our journey. Follow us on social at HPR Gen Listen. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience Joyful Return, an interactive exhibition featuring community-driven pop-up installations across the museum. HonoluluMuseum.org. culinary program at Hilo Community College when he left two years ago. Hirata has been devoting himself to the Na'au project in Hilo. It links, Na'au, link, hmm, I've got to tell you what it means first. Na'au is translated as bowels, mind, heart, or gut instinct, and this Na'au project links cherished traditional foods to environmental stewardship. Hirata wants a new generation of chefs to be tied to the particular plants and animals of this place. I, I want to introduce them to coveted local ingredients, endemic ingredients. I, I grew up in a family that um, hunted and fished and, and farmed. When? I mean, seriously, Brian, this is a problem we have. People don't have time to fish. You think they have time to hunt? Every Your parents, that was their full-time job or you did it no, on weekends? My, my great-grandma was actually really smart. He was actually born in Hawaii in 1895. He acquired land. When I was born and grew up visiting them, they were growing shoga. Young uh, ginger. Yeah. My mom would let me stay with my auntie the entire summer. And I had two older cousins that hunted and fished. And I basically just tagged along with them. You always yes. ate what you yeah. gathered. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Exactly. From a young age, uh, I learned how to smoke meat, make sausage. From the things we, we shot, I learned how to dive at a very young age. We shoot like reef fish or, or catch taco for a period of time. Right around the time I was in college, I got really into night diving. We do a, we'd night dive a lot. We just catch lobsters, slipper lobsters, spiny lobsters, shoot moose. And what would you do with your catch? We eat it. <laughs> okay. You got something out of it, something you want to share. Is that why? Yeah. What bothered you about people, you know, moving away from gathering their own food? Um, oh, where do we start? Um, I, I grew up picking ogo, uh, limu, at Eva Beach with my mom probably every other Sunday. For people who grew up in that area in the 70s and 80s, I think right now they should be asking themselves, what happened to Eva Beach? Because Eva Beach was a area full of various wild limus that the Hawaiian culture used to eat. It's an ocean desert now. There's there's no limu there. Through science and research, I know that the main reasons are overdevelopment, fertilizer runoff, and the lack of natural spring water into the ocean. It's also over harvesting. My mom actually didn't even go in the water. Like right. the ogle would just, whatever washed up. It's on all the on the shore. shore. Yeah, all on the shore. But if you go to Eva Beach now, 
it's just white sand. There's nothing, you know. <laughs> the people in my age bracket and older who know that area should be asking themselves, what happened? What happened? Well, you're taking foraging back to uh, finding food is, is, is our, supposed to be our main occupation. You're saying that we're getting so far from it and not even recognizing it. Yeah, exactly. It's a tipping point at this point, the way I see it. I, I grew up hunting Pohokaloa, which is a military training area. Over the last close to four decades now, I've, I've seen the degradation that has occurred there. It was lush, it was green, it had seasons. There's nothing there now. The mamane trees barely grow. There's hardly any grass. It's basically just a dust flat now. It's unrecognizable from before. How's it's, the hunting? The military regulates it heavily, so it's very rare that you can even hunt in that area anymore. When you start talking about the food, you start talking about where it's from. So you're relating food to place and kind of making us care here. Look at Vana. Vana alone. You couldn't even walk out in the, the water without getting stabbed by Vana before. Now you can't even find it, even though you look in the little crevices here on shoreline right. Oahu. Right. We don't know. When we go to a, a dinner of foraged food, what if we really like it? I mean, if this is rare stuff you're talking about now. Or are you going to teach us to love tilapia? Those, those are excellent questions. And you know, I use ingredients like vana, like right now, vana is in season. The hala trees are fruiting, which tells me that it's time to pick vana. But I use it in very limited quantities. I use it as a source for my young chefs that work with me because I feel like if I don't pass on this knowledge, it becomes extinct eventually, right? When their historical information doesn't get passed on, the culture dies. It's as simple as that. Well, people and lose a taste got, for things. What's the main message you want these young chefs to get? You don't want them all foraging for, for ingredients, do you? Or, or what? No. The, the goal is never to exploit the ingredients. The goal is always to educate and understand and have it, having a respect for what is here in, in Hawaii. After we die, after my generation dies, and the next generation doesn't know or care of these ingredients, then we're done. You know, we're, we're done as a food culture. It doesn't take a scientist to realize that that's where we're headed. If no one knows of these ingredients, it's going to be lost. Chef Brian Hirata will be offering dinners in Honolulu and Waimea this fall. The first is a dinner in Honolulu at Pai with Chef Kevin Lee, September 5th. Information at Naohilo, and we'll post links with this story. Hirata mentioned changes at Pohakuloa on Hawaii Island. The Army is taking public comment now on their petition to extend their leases at Pohakuloa, also Kahuku, Puamoho and Makua here on Oahu. The comment period ends in four days, September 1st. We'll post the link for comments with this story. Wingtech Lum is a businessman and poet. You see buildings with his family's name Lum Yip Key on them in Chinatown today. Currently, they own their office building on King Street, just off Nu'uanu. Lum has been researching and writing about the turn of the 20th century in Honolulu's Chinatown. His grandfather had a store in the old Oahu Railway Terminal across Aala Park. The pink brick building is still there. Lum's poem, In the Store, is set around 1910. It paints a picture of daily occurrences in a truly vibrant neighborhood. Well, the store is inspired by my grandfather's own store, uh, which was called Wingdup Chong. It was actually a, a meeting place. It had all kinds of different wares. 
did it look a lot like Chinatown looks right now? Yes. So people could actually see what they were getting. People could pick and choose which kinds of um, uh, tea they wanted to get. Uh, or uh, sometimes they wanted to get fresh ginger, so they wanted to get the ginger grown here. So they could, they could pick and choose what they wanted. But the general store also served as a meeting place where people could exchange news, exchange gossip, they could talk story with each other. Would you read us some of the poem? The rumors about the fight at the sugar mill swirl around the saltfish and traveler's plum, the sleek sausages hanging under the open transom, the dried scallops, fat medallions of gold sorted by origin in wicker baskets. So the saltfish, I mean, the saltfish, my favorite, you must be talking about Ham Yi there now, which is still hanging yes. <laughs> in front of so yes. many stores. And, traveler's and Plum, what is that? Well, Traveler's Plum is actually what locals here today know as Li Hing Mui. Now, in the contemporary Cantonese standard uh, dialect, it's called Loi Hang Mui. Loi Hang Mui is Traveler's Plum. Originally, when people wanted to take a trip, like walk to another village, even going abroad, they would carry these little snacks of crack seed or simui to get an energy boost. Take boost. little nips of it, right? Instead of having a granola bar, I guess. And so <laughs> uh, it was called a plum for travelers. And how about dried scallops? It's actually quite expensive. And really abalone. Stuff. The references to abalone and also to uh, tangerine peels is very specific because these are imports. The abalone was not grown here. They were caught in San Francisco and the Chinese there dried them and sent them. And so we imported abalone. Also, the tangerine peels, sometimes dried for years and years, were a specialty of a particular county in Guangdong province in China they would be exported all around the world, including to Hawaii. And so the store imported and also exported goods around the world. And, you know, I really want to give people a sense of the place. When we think of Hami hanging there and the, the glass jars of scallops and abalone, and then we know that there's a smell, there's a feeling, there's... It's also very clustered, uh, cramped. It's like uh, going to the supermarket, but also to a clubhouse to see all your friends and family. Huh, right. Let, let, let's go back to the poem. A barber comes in early to buy some young ginger, but stays a while to chat with the schoolteacher's petite wife, who is looking for peanut oil. Before she leaves, she coaxes her toddler to recite a quatrain out loud. All the uncles applaud, and the little girl gets to choose a rock candy from the tall glass jar under the counter. <laughs> right, and you get your little daughter to perform, and the uncles clap for her. Right. That is so cute. You could get a letter written for you. You could communicate with your family, and you could yep. even transfer money. Yeah, you say in the poem. At noon, a clerk is sent out to buy vegetables. Another clerk doubles as the cook, and everyone eats their lunches discreetly, standing at their stations. They leave the scraps for the pair of calico cats, just enough to keep them coming around, but not enough to stop their hunt for rats. Rather than losing it again, a gambler sends his night's winnings to his mother. The cashier collects his money and will mail a coded letter back to the village where an elder holds a chest of silver for the store. So you could transfer money and you, all, you could also use the store as a mail drop. But I want to ask you, Wing Tech, what do you think life was like for the patrons of this store? There are all walks of life. I mentioned a school teacher's petite wife. There were very few women living in Chinatown at the time. I think the ratio was 10 men to one woman. And don't forget, this was after annexation. So the Chinese Exclusion Acts applied to Hawaii as well after annexation. So after that point, it was even more serious that there were very few women allowed into Hawaii. I wanted to kind of point that out. There were all these uncles around who were basically bachelors who were unable to bring their wives 
to Hawaii to live with them. That's one of the problems that we had here in Hawaii after annexation. And what happened was men then turned to a lot of other recreations because they didn't have a stable home life and turned to vices like gambling, opium, and prostitution. Do you think that crime got rooted in that period because of that sort of lack of recreational opportunity and no family life? There's no family life. And I think that occurred even prior to annexation as well, because usually the men immigrated first. They were then able to bring their wives and family members. Then annexation occurred. And so that just shut the door for any future wives being brought. All of these vices were then exacerbated. Where do you think crime is happening in Chinatown now? I'm not sure about gambling, but there's certainly a lot of drugs. Uh, There's a lot of homeless on the streets. Hopefully, the weed and seed initiatives by the mayor will try to deal with chronic problems of drugs and mental illness. Wing Tech, do you know uh, any historic reasons that these kinds of unsavory behaviors persist in Chinatown? Chinatown has always been an area where there's a different standard of, of, of living for people here in Hawaii. Some of it is good, some of it is not so good. It has been tolerated to a greater extent. How does Chinatown feel to you today? You know it well. You buy produce there, right? Do you or not? Yes, it still has a lot of the fresh produce that Chinese like. For instance, prices in Chinatown for vegetables, it's cheaper than what you get at your neighborhood supermarket. By a Um, dollar at least. um, Yeah, many people will say it's a better quality, fresher. You have to come to Chinatown. And also there is a cultural reason for that. Most Chinese, most Asians like to purchase fresh produce every day. That's the cultural reason why Chinatown has continued to have very good fresh produce. This brings us back to the store, you know, because my husband's family, I mean, the mother would have, would cook, you know, a live turtle brought in that day, or certainly fish, uh, frogs, those kinds of things were were live every day there at your grandfather's kind of store. (laughs) You could get those kinds of produce every day. So there, there was a large turnover. That's really important. You knew that you were getting the freshest vegetables and the freshest meats. That's another reason why people continue to patronize Chinatown today. Sure is. Wing Tech Lum is a businessman and poet. His latest series, about 70 poems so far, is centered in Honolulu's Chinatown, 1900 to 1911. His poems are published by Bamboo Ridge Press. I don't hear complaints today about gambling and prostitution. It's daily complaints about drug dealing and intimidation by aggressive or uncontrollable people. A third of the complaints I hear would be solved with a toilet. A Chinatown resident wrote me yesterday. She and others have been struggling against deteriorating conditions for over a decade. And they're all in Chinatown for a reason, however which they never forget. They don't want it gentrified or homogenized. They just want it safe. They like the history. They like the current melange of culture because we own the story of, for example, Aala Park. 1938, in his song, Manuela Boy, Johnny Noble described Aala Park. Where you go, hiamoy, moy moy, sleep. Bill Tapia played and sang it at his 100th birthday concert in 2011. Manuel boy, my dear boy, he no more, he layla, he no more license, no more house, he go all apart here, boy.
Quick reminder, we're in the last two days at Bishop Museum's online auction fundraiser. Check it out. And Kiki classes are starting up at the Downtown Arts Center, where Hawaii Arts Alliance is sponsoring Filipino culture dance, drawing, and ceramics. Sign up for fall classes at Donkey Mill 2 there in Holuoloa. They're opening a new show right now with viewings by appointment. Kappa by Dalani Tanahi, Rowan Hufford, and others. Check it out there on the Kona Coast. And with KCC's Koa Gallery on kind of COVID hiatus, Gallery Director Drew Broderick's partnering with Aris Cafe to show KCC faculty. And right now, Chloe Kang and Yumiko Glover, you know Yumiko's early work, those Japanese schoolgirls in Lucky Belly, Kang and Glover, through September 17th at Aris Cafe Montserrat. Well, hey, that's about it for this Aloha Friday. Thank you so much for being here for it. I'm so glad. And how was your week, by the way? Uh, anything on your mind? Call our talkback line and tell us. That's 808-792-8217. Email us, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Comment anywhere on those social media sites that you love, Facebook, etc. Visit the conversation page on the HPR website if you'd like to listen back to any of these shows. You really should listen back to the rest of that uh, a la Park song. The program's produced by Savannah Harriman Pote, Russell Sobiono, and Lillian Song. Theme music, courtesy Gypsy 808. I'm Noe Tanigawa. Join us Monday when Catherine Cruz picks up the conversation. Until then, let's take care of each other. <laughs>